pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. So God, we are thankful that we get to come together as a group of of believers, as, as your children coming together as part of your family and knowing that your word is alive and it's speaking to us tonight. And so we pray that you would be, first of all, honored by the attention that we give to it and that you would be blessed, but that also that uh, that the word would impact our hearts, that you right now by your Holy Spirit would teach us and that you would prepare our hearts right now to receive what you want to say. God, we do not want to hear your word and walk out unchanged. We want to let your word work truth into our lives. We want to be transformed. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that tonight through your word. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So 1 John, we said last week, is one of the, one of the later books of the New Testament written. John is writing it really to encourage the church. Um, and he's addressing a couple things specifically. So he opens up, his introduction is really an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was a real person. He's not just this distant God who, who you kind of hope you can believe in. John says, no, no, we touched him, we saw him, we felt him, we interacted with him. And he, he draws this idea that God is massively eternal and big and huge beyond our comprehension, but also incredibly approachable. And then from there, as he's writing, he's giving us certain emphasis, emphases on different aspects of the character of God. And really, First John, if you want to think of it as there's three primary aspects that John is going to emphasize. He emphasizes the fact that God is light. In chapters 1 to 2, really, uh, God is light. God is the means by which you see what's in front of you, the means by which you see and comprehend reality and truth. Tonight, we're going to cover the other two ideas, which are that God is love, which I would say is really the primary focus of the book, and then also towards the end, in chapter 5, that God is life, that God is where we have true life. There's a difference between being alive and having life. There's a difference between breathing and having a vibrancy and an abundance in your life, and God is the life that, that can truly awaken our hearts and our souls. And so John's going to emphasize those things for us. So chapter 3. Verse 1, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, First of all, observe, John says, that God has given his love to us. Love is something we receive. It is not something we manufacture. And then he says, therefore the world does not know us. We talked about last week, the world has a set of what it defines as loves. Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The world has things that will hold up and say, no, this is love. And John says, no, no, love is what we have received from God, and therefore the world does not know us. If we are defined by the love of God, and the world is defined by the loves that it has created in its own mind, then the world will not understand us. The world will not be able to comprehend how we live our lives. If your life makes sense to Christians, there is a problem. Because Christians should look at your life and say, I don't get it. 
Like, what is your drive? What is the impetus? Why do you find joy in these circumstances? Why do you continue in these things? Why do you persevere through struggles? Why are you doing life the way you're doing? And the answer is because we have received the love of God. And then he says, now we are children of God. The love of God has made us into something. It has made us the children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. This is important. The love of God, John emphasizes, is transforming us. Love is changing us. The love of God is making us into something. And John says it's not clear yet what we shall be. I don't know exactly what it looks like when I die and I'm, and I'm perfected. I have, just, I have too much sin in my system to be able to accurately conceive of what it would be like to live without sin. I can't fathom it. Like, I, I don't have the capacity to understand that. And John says, okay, we don't totally understand what we're going to be, but we know that God is transforming us into his image. We know that we are going to be made like Christ, not in the sense that we'll be God, but in the sense that we'll be perfected. We're going to be perfected, and we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we know that the love of God is something that we've received, and it's something that's transforming us. Love Receiving the love of God cannot leave a person unchanged. And that's why John will emphasize, really throughout the rest of this book, he emphasized it last week as well, but if someone claims to have received the love of God and there's no transformation that's ever happened, then you've got to really question, well, wait, did you, tran- did you understand the love of God? Have you received it? Or are you just saying you've received it because it's popular or it's convenient or you just wish it to be true? But the love of God is transforming us into something. In verse 3, he says, Everyone who has this hope in him, who has the love of God in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. If you've received the perfect love of God and you realize that God is perfect and he's shaping you in his image to be made perfect someday, then what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to purify yourself. Because if I realize that the love of God is bringing me to a point where someday I will step through eternity and I will be with Christ, and I will be perfected, and I understand the scope of that as much as is humanly possible, then I want to get as close to that now as I can. My goal, if I understand and I've received the love of God, is not to stay as far away from the love of God up until the moment I die, and then get really close. It's not to break the law right up until the cop shows up, and then be just, you know, going three under the speed limit. It's to say, no, I want to be as close to the presence of God right now. I want to be anticipating. I want to be trying to comprehend. I want to be trying to wrap my head around. I know I can't fully. Right? There, are, there are things in life that you can't understand until you walk through them. It doesn't matter, but you can, you can try. Right? You're not going to understand being a parent until you're a parent. Right? You're, you can try. You can talk to people who have kids. You can watch. You can have a bunch of younger siblings. You can think you're an expert which is the stage I'm at right now in my life. But, uh, but you can't actually know what it's like to be a parent until you have children. But if your life dream is to have children, then you probably shouldn't be a person who goes around talking about how much you hate kids all the time. Right? Like, I, I just hate all kids. I'll, someday I'll have my own, and, and then it'll be great. That's not, there's a, there's a disconnect. If you want to arrive at a, point point, or you understand that your life is going to arrive at a point, you prepare yourself for it. 
John's saying, look, if we understand that we're going to be with Christ, we should be purifying ourselves in the sense that we want to now, as we've received the love of Christ, continue in the love of Christ. We want to keep growing closer to Jesus Christ. And so he carries the idea out further in verse 4. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, we talked about this last week. We'll talk about it again this week because it matters and it's relevant. In the Greek present tense, when these verbs that John is using, what he's, the idea that he's conveying is an active continual, habitual life action. So when he says that whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, he's not saying if you've made a mistake as a Christian, that proves that you're not a Christian. He's saying, if you're walking in sin and you're not repenting and you don't care, if you don't, if you don't care that your sin is separating you from God, then that means you're separate from God. Okay, there's a difference between, oh, I'm struggling and I'm, and I'm repenting and I'm going to the Lord and I'm asking someone to help me stay accountable and, and to, to, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to transform my life and I'm still struggling and I'm still weak and I'm in my flesh, but I am trying to walk closer to Christ. That is different than, yeah, I'm, I, I'm sinning, but God still loves me. People live with this idea all, all the time, all throughout really church history, but we see it over and over again in our world today. I can do this because Jesus still loves me. Well, wait a second. That's not the point. The question is not, can't I do this and still have God love me? God loved us while we were sinners. God loved us while we hated him. Whether or not you can do it and God still loves you is a stupid train of logic to make. The question is not, does God still love me if I do this? The question is, does this separate me from God? And John says, in that sense, whoever sins, whoever's actively, continually, habitually sinning without a desire to repent, has neither seen him nor known him. And then he says, understand this. For this purpose, in verse 8, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy sin. Jesus came to defeat sin. He didn't come to defeat death so that you could then sin as much as you want in your life and still have life. He came to destroy sin. So John says, if you understand that and you comprehend that, then that means that you don't want sin in your life. If I understand that Jesus came to destroy something and he died in the process, because he said, this is what's destroying the world, and I'm going to die to destroy this, then our goal should never be, I wonder what that feels like. I wonder how close I could get to that line. Right? Oh, he died for me. Yeah, oh, he, he suffocated to death on a cross. It, it's the most painful form of torture that's ever been developed. Yeah, yeah, that's great, whatever. But I still kind of want to get close over here. No, no, no. If, if that's the mentality, then you, do not, you have not seen or understand who Jesus Christ is. But John says Christ came to destroy sin. He didn't come so we could live in it. He came so we could be free from it. People get obsessed over what am I free to do as a Christian. Can I do this and still be a Christian? Christianity is not about what you are free to do. It's about what you are free to not have to do. 
Because before you are in Christ, before you've received the love of God, you're a slave to your sins. You get an appetite, you get an impulse, you get a desire, and you obey it. You are at your flesh's beck and call. But Christ comes along and says, you don't have to, you don't have to listen to that. You can defy your flesh. You can walk in self-control. You don't have to be a slave to your flesh. You can actually be what Paul describes in Romans 5 as a slave of righteousness. You are free to not have to do those things. In verse 10, he goes on. He says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The same idea here, that active, continual, unrepentant. Verse 11, For this is the message that, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John does this thing that, that's really, on its face, is very odd. But if you understand the character of Christ, it, it's... It's, it's perfect. John connects knowing Christ with loving other people. Okay, that, that's, that's where he, he establishes the point of, here's how you understand. If you want to know, do I understand what God is doing in my life? Look at how you treat other people. If you want to say, do I understand the love of Christ? Well, look at how you love other people. Okay, because he says here, the message that you've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. The message you've heard from the beginning, now, you would think he'd say something about, you know, the message you've heard from the beginning is, is absolute devotion to God. And, and, and you know, and you've got to do these acts. And he says, the message that you've heard from the beginning is love each other. And he's tying it in, I think, specifically to a passage in the, book, in the Gospel of John during the Last Supper. John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is speaking. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, if you, if you want to know what to do, if you want to know, if, you, if it's like, okay, I've received the love of God, what do I do now? Love one another. Jesus sums that up. Okay, he, he said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said that sums up the entire law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament, which is quite a bit of writing. And there's a lot of wonderful passages in it, but it's, it's over two-thirds of our Bible. Jesus said you can sum it all up in this. Love God and then love your neighbor. And John is just carrying out that idea. He says, because the two are connected, you cannot love God and then refuse to love your neighbor because the love of God is what? Transformative. The love of God will change your outlook on how you see others. And so he says, with that, again, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The world does not understand this kind of love. The world understands a love that says, well, I need what I want. And if you can satisfy that need, I love you. And if you can't, I hate you. John says, this isn't how love works. Love works in the sense that God has given us his love. And we now then, as recipients of it, are transformed in a way that makes us love other people. So verse 16 he says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. 
And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He's connecting it again. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, as he gave his commandment. Now, this is one of those passages where it's just good sometimes to acknowledge right up front that we're not going to fully unpack it because you could unpack it for the rest of your life and never have really touched the bottom. But he says, by this we know love. Okay, we, said we, have, we have a definition of love. We have a metric of love and, and we have a, a means of determining what love is and it's that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. We have a definition of what love is and the definition of love is Jesus Christ died for you. Now, Think about this for a moment. He says, this is the definition of love. Now then, let's not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So he gives us a definition and then he challenges us, don't love by saying it. And it's interesting, if you go back again to that verse in John, John 13, uh, verses 34 and 35, what does Jesus say? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I, as, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the interesting thing. In the Last Supper, particularly as John writes it, we get a very first-hand account of Jesus pouring out his heart and the disciples really missing all the, the good points. Right? Uh, Jesus says, I'm, where I'm going, you can't follow me yet. And they're like, well, where are you going? He's like, oh boy. I'm going to die, right? And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip, and Philip or Thomas is like, okay, can you just show us the Father? And he's like, guys, like, I'm, I'm trying to explain this to you, and you are not getting it. But when Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you, nobody interrupts him. They all, as far as we can tell, knew exactly what he was talking about. But here's the thing. We have no record anywhere in the Gospels of Jesus ever telling the disciples that he loved them. But Jesus could say, okay, do love each other exactly the way I loved you, and they all understood what he was talking about. But he may have never told them that he loved them. Because love is not a spoken phrase. Love is not saying, I love you. Love is a demonstration of life. And specifically, we have a definition that love is, is we know it by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. Love is service. And that's why John can connect over and over and over again. Understanding the love of God impacts the way you serve and love other people because love, by its definition, is what can I give in this relationship? And that's where it's, it's, it's critical. This is where you may have to understand the difference between how the world defines love and how the scriptures define love. This is where we have to understand when John says God is love, he does not say love is God. Okay, because what scriptures say is, here is the definition of the character of God, and if you understand that, you understand real love. What the world says is, here is what we want love to be, and so we are going to redefine who we think God is 
to make our perception of God fit our definition of love in a way that makes us comfortable. And John says, that's not how this works. The world defines love as how does this make me feel? What is this doing for me? And that's why love is such an abused word, because we say things like, I love pizza. Well, you don't love pizza in the sense that you're laying down your life for it. What do you love? You, you love the way it makes you feel, right? I love driving fast cars. Well, I'm not dying for the car. The car might kill me, but it's, the car makes me feel a certain way. And we say the same thing in relationships. We say, I love you. What do we really mean? Oftentimes, we mean, I like the way you make me feel, because this is all about me and my feelings. And if you bring a good vibe to this relationship, I love you. If you don't, you know, we're just not vibing very well, right? We define love by our take and our perspective. And does this make me feel good? John says, that's not love. Love is Jesus Christ died for us. So biblical love is not, here's what I get out of it. Biblical love is, here's how I can serve in it. And that's why he says, don't worry about what you say. I mean, sure, it's, it's probably, you know, if you're married, it's probably a good idea to tell your spouse that you love them, I guess. You're a lot better off demonstrating it, right? You're a lot better off just living it out. I'm not saying don't tell them that you love them, but I'm just saying as a single guy who's also, I'm an expert on parenting, I'm also an expert on marriage. I've got these things all figured out. I could write books and make millions, but... Sorry, I'm, I'm now totally distracted by that thought. Um... <laughs> but in a relationship, the definition of do you love the person is not can you say it, it's not can you get a great feeling, it's are you willing to serve them? And that's, where, that's why our world fails at marriage. That's where the church, if it's not grounded biblically, fails at marriage. Because they say, oh, let's get married because we love each other. And what we mean is, oh, let's get married because we love the way we feel when that person's around. Biblical marriage is, I'm willing to die to myself over and over again for the rest of my life because I believe that in laying down my life and in being selfless, there will be a fruit and an abundancy and a vibrancy that can come out of this relationship that cannot come out of me pursuing my own self-interest. That's what a Christian should mean when they tell their spouse, I love you. That's a little different. But that's how John defines love according to the character of God because God is love. Love is not God. The order matters. You understand the character of God and you can understand real love. But if you start with love and, and what you want it to be, then you will wind up with a very warped and distorted picture of who God is. And from there, he goes on, he says, okay, if we understand this, in, in verse 19 and 20, he says, by this we know that we're of the truth. If we understand love, if we understand the love of God, we're in truth. And we have assurance, even if our heart condemns us. If you're walking in the love of God, you know what? Satan loves to get, try and get inside your head and tell you, oh no, you don't actually love God. You're not actually a Christian. Look at you, you sinned again. You knew that was a sin. You knew you weren't supposed to do it. You knew it was going to make you feel guilty, and you did it anyways, and look at that. You're probably not a Christian. You don't know the love of God. And John says, you know what? You tell Satan to go take a hike and shut up. Because 
If you've experienced the love of God, it doesn't matter what your heart tells you. Your heart can lie to you about whether or not you're in love or out of love. Because your heart says, oh, I don't have a feeling. And John says, I don't care if you have a feeling. You have the love of Christ. And you don't know, you don't, we don't, it doesn't say, by this we know love that Jesus Christ gave us a great feeling. He says, by this we know love that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. If you understand that, I don't care what you feel. I don't care what's there. I care about, do you understand the love of Christ and is it transforming you? And is it shaping the way you love other people? And so 20, verse 23, he says, this is his commandment. Again, just over and over again, John is, is summing it up for us so concisely. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You, you have to understand and accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Once that happens, the, the result effect is going to be love one another. Verse 24. And we're going to finish out chapter 3 and dive into chapter 4 here. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know that we're in Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Beloved, chapter 4, verse 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he says we, we know that God is in us by the spirit who is dwelling in us. And if we want to know if we're uh, in a situation where we're with other Christians and other believers, we understand it by the spirit that's in them. And he says here, it's interesting. He says, hey, don't believe every spirit. The fact that someone can tell you they're Christian, unfortunately, does not mean a thing. It's, it, it's, it's in a sense a worthless claim because we're not called to love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Anybody can tell you that they're a Christian. But John gives us a test here. Any, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And remember this. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. It's Messiah, Savior. Everyone who says that Jesus is the Savior who came and was a man. Everyone who understands that, that Jesus is God and man and he died for our sins, that person, they've received that love and that spirit, is a Christian. John keeps it super basic, almost annoyingly basic, because there's a lot of room in that statement for people who really, really annoy us, right? People who have all kinds of weird ideas. I mean, like, really weird ideas. There are people who believe that, who I can't stand to be around. There are people who believe that, who just, they believe things about the Bible that are like, have you lost your mind? But you know what they are? Christians. You know they are? They're brothers and sisters. And 
like any family, sometimes brothers and sisters are just a tad annoying and just a tad crazy. But that doesn't change the fact that they're still brothers and sisters. John keeps it super basic. So guess what? There are denominations where there are people who we disagree with on some pretty significant doctrinal stances, but you know what they are? Christians. There are fellow heirs of the kingdom of Christ. They will be with us in the presence of Jesus someday. And that should influence the way we treat them and love them. That doesn't mean that we just blankly accept every idea that a fellow Christian gives us. It doesn't mean we accept everything as truth that a Christian pastor might tell us. You take it to the Word of God. You take it to the Holy Spirit. Is this true? Is this right? Is this valid? But understand, in terms of understanding, quote-unquote, who's on our side, Jesus said, hey, if they're not against us, they're for us. If they are surrendered to Christ... They are our family. Now that is the test. If they are not surrendered to Christ, they are not part of our family. We can love them, we can pray for them, but they are not part of the family of God. But if they are surrendered to Christ, it does not matter what their background is. It does not matter what, what church affiliation they're a part of. They are our family. So verse 7, he goes on, and he's going to repeat the idea again. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, and that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He emphasizes again, because evidently this is important, and evidently we are sometimes slow to pick it up, but love comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God. Now that's an interesting idea. John is saying, if you do not have God, you do not have love. It doesn't matter what you call it. If you have true love, it is of Christ. It is impossible for a non-Christian to truly love. Now, there are people who are not Christians who do wonderful things. There are people who are not Christians who do sacrificial things. There are people who lay down their lives for other people. But John is connecting a level of spiritual love with knowing Christ. And he says there's a kind of love that cannot be known unless you are in Christ. There's a kind of fellowship I can have with other believers, even with other believers who annoy me. It is still deeper than I can have with a non-believer who is just like me and matches my personality and my taste and my preferences in every single way. Because we have the Spirit of Christ in us and we have the love of God within us. And so understand, all true love originates from God. And that's where, again, we've got to go back. Okay, what is love? By this we know. Because he laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ has died for us. Verse 12. He says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. So, no one has seen God. Now, it's a true statement in the sense that no one has ever seen God in all of His glory. God said, You cannot see me and live. Jesus Christ came to earth. He was fully God. He was fully man. But He... And I don't, I don't know how you do it, but he's God, so it's his problem, not mine. He was able to, if you will, bottle up the glory and pack it down into a package that people could 
actually see him and not die. But they didn't see him fully unveiled. John describes a vision of Christ in Revelation, and it's not what people were seeing down on earth. He says his eyes, you know, it's like it's almost like he was glowing metal. Right? He, he was there's a sword coming out of his mouth. He's, he's John's trying to describe this and he's coming up short because he doesn't have enough words in in human language to describe what he's seeing. No one has seen God at any time. So how do you know if you've interacted with God? Well, if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know, verse 13, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loves, loved us. So again, the, the idea, John just is, is trying as hard as he can in a short letter to make sure we understand what he's talking about. He says, God is love. He who abides in love abides in God. And again, you need to understand, if John says God is love and the character of God is the definition of love, that means that not all loves are created equal. Okay, you see signs. You see they're all over our country right now. Love is love. You ever seen that? You've seen that sign? That might be like the dumbest thing you could ever put down. And I say that as nicely as I can, which is not that much. But think about this. Imagine we were going to go out for dinner, and you say, I want pizza. I, and where do you want to go? I say, I don't care. Pizza's pizza. Now, some of you in the room get a little more worked up over that than others. But some of you are like, no, it's not. Pizza is not pizza, right? There's pizza, and then there's pizza. Let's say we wanted to buy a car. What do you want to buy? A charger or a Yugo. A car's a car. No, they're not. Cars are not cars. You want a plumber to fix your toilet? You're going to call. That plumber's a plumber. It's just plastic pipes. Any idiot could put it together. You know, when that thing starts leaking, you're going to realize not all plumbers are created equal. Right? We, we, we don't say this for like any other thing in the world. We understand that there are different qualities and calibers of either workmanship or craftsmanship or just even professional pride in the way someone makes or performs a service or a product. But the one says, oh, all love is love. And what they mean by that is I can identify my truth and you can identify your truth and you stay out of my space and I will stay out of your space. Although now what they really mean is you stay out of my space and I will get in your space. But John says, no, love is not love. Not all loves are equal because we have a definition of love. And that is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so loves, a love that is reflecting that is a different kind of love than when someone says, oh, I love you because you make me feel good. Those are not equal. And that is why, as Christians, we have not only the ability but the responsibility to tell the world that not all loves are created equal. That there are some loves that are actually not only not of the same caliber, there are some loves that are actually perverted. 
There are some loves that are an abomination. There are some loves that are evil. Because the world loves things that are evil. And so we have an obligation to never say, oh, love is love. To never say, oh, you know what, they're just in love. No, no, they're they're not. If anyone ever excuses a sinful relationship by saying, well, they're just in love, what they mean is, oh, they're just in love according to the world's standards. Because if they're just in love according to the definition of what Christ has done, they're going to say, I want the best for this person. And me living with this person or me being engaged in a sexually immoral relationship with this person is not the best thing for that person. And so I'm going to actually die to myself and deny my appetites and my cravings and actually separate myself from this situation for their benefit. That's the love of Christ. So no, love is not love. God has established a parameter through His character and through the person of Christ. And if we do not understand that, we cannot understand true love. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again and again, John says, okay, who are your brothers and sisters? Anybody who says that, that Jesus is the Christ who is born of God. And if they're a Christian, they're a Christian. And, and he's making a, a, a point here that if you've received the love of God, and you understand love in the sense of Jesus Christ laid down his life for me, then you have now lost the privilege to judge another Christian and say, oh, they don't deserve the love of God. Because what you just, you've acknowledged, oh, I received a free gift that I didn't deserve. But they should not receive a gift that they do not deserve. He says, no, 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 no. You received a gift you didn't deserve. They can receive the gift that they don't deserve. And so if we understand the love of God, we realize we are never in a position to despise someone else. Oh, you can hate sin. You, you, can, you, can, you can call someone a fool for walking in sin if you need to. You can rebuke people very sharply if necessary. But you cannot despise them. You can't see them as unworthy of God's grace because you're not worthy of God's grace. I'm not worthy of God's grace. John says, do you understand this? That we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We just... Over and over again, John cannot stop telling us, if you know Christ, you will love the people around you. Because God's love is transformative. So verse 6, chapter 5. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Okay, there's two main points you've got to understand about this passage here. The first is this, he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. 
And basically, there's some debate about what does the water specifically symbolize and what does the blood specifically symbolize. But overall, he's making a point about this is the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ came as a real human. Some people say the water and blood is, you know, when he was born as a man. Some people say it was when he, when he died and his side was pierced. Some say it was the baptism of John and, and the initiation of communion. It could be any one of those. It honestly could be all of those. It really doesn't matter. Because the point is, John is saying we're talking about a real Jesus. Remember at the beginning of this book, he says, the one who we handled and we saw and we touched. That's who we're talking about. So he says, we're talking about a real Christ. Now, for the sake of just, I guess you call it full disclosure, there's some confusion over uh, here in, in verse 7 and 8. He says, there's three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth. That portion does not appear in most of the earlier Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And here's the deal. There are fantastic Bible scholars who love the Lord dearly and love the Word of God dearly who come to different conclusions on what, why that is. And I, in prep for this week, listen to one guy. He's like, okay, here's why. Obviously, this is part of the original portion of Scripture. I have a lot of respect for that pastor. Listen to another pastor today. He's like, here's why. I honestly don't think that portion uh, is, in, is in the passage of Scripture. But basically what you have is uh, most of the early manuscripts don't contain that portion. And there's sort of a point in time at which later manuscripts do. And so there's a little bit of debate. And it's, it's okay to admit there's a debate here because... Basically, it's one of two things. Either there's a point in time at which someone tried to cut it out or a point in time at which someone tried to stick it in. We truthfully don't really know for sure which of the two it is. Okay, and then there's really fantastic arguments on both sides of that idea. The short answer is it doesn't truthfully matter because here's why. He's making a point about the Trinity. He says there's three that bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And the Word would be sort of the reference that John uses often for Jesus. So he's saying there's three that bear witness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay, if that was taken out, there have always been heresies that tried to teach that the, Holy, that the Trinity is not a real thing. So it could be that there were people who tried to take it out. If that's the case, we say, well, you know what? They failed. It's still here. If it was inserted then we say, you know what? Praise the Lord, we have so many manuscripts that we can say, yeah, we're not totally sure. It might have been somebody who's just a little overzealous to try and make a point about the Trinity. But here's the point. Either way, the doctrine of the Trinity does not hinge on this verse. The doctrine of the Trinity is throughout the Scripture. Okay? And so it's okay sometimes to say, we're not 100% positive how this should translate. There's, I think, 50 portions of the New Testament where there's a little bit of question over, does this belong or not? And if you say, wow, that's a lot. No, that, that's one one-thousandth of the New Testament. Where we say, okay, could be a little bit of give or take here. And, I, and we point that out, just to, really just to be honest. It's okay to come to the Scripture and say, you know, I'm not totally sure if that verse belongs there or not. It's important to understand it, though, because oftentimes cults uh, really like to know all about this verse and why, oh, it's not actually a real verse. And so if you were having a discussion with a person who's a Jehovah's Witness, 
And you say, no, I, can, I believe in the Trinity, and here's why. First John 5, 7, they'll say, well, actually, do you understand? And, and they'll just start zinging through all these facts. And you'll say, wow, wow, um, gosh, maybe the Trinity is not real. Maybe Jesus isn't really the Christ. Maybe uh, I'm not a Christian. Maybe God is a hoax. And so I just I point it out just to basically so that you understand. It's an important passage of Scripture, okay? It's important that we be aware of it. Uh, mostly in the sense that you're not thrown off guard if someone comes at you and tries to attack the Word of God by attacking this portion. Okay? And it's okay to say there's a couple spots in the Scripture where we're not 100% sure what the perfect translation is. But understand this, too. The reason sometimes that that feels like a big deal is because the Scriptures are so faithfully preserved. The reason we make a big deal out of this one verse is because it's one of the only verses where there's a controversy, right? This isn't like the Odyssey or the Iliad where there's just like so many discrepancies we just really don't even care. It's not worth keeping track. What we have here is an instance where we say, okay, hmm, not totally sure. There's a point here about the Trinity. It doesn't change the rest of the scripture in terms of doctrine one way or the other. And so I point that out really just so that we're aware of it and we don't get thrown off guard by it. Now verse 9, he's going to start to transition and we're in the wrap-up stages here. He says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John says, okay, listen, here's the deal. You receive the witness of men. You believe men when they tell you things. right? You might ask them a couple questions to kind of clarify, but by and large, if someone tells you something, you believe it. He says, okay. Great idea. How about instead of that, how about you believe God who's telling you something? Because he says God is telling you something really important here. And what is God telling us? That God has given us eternal life. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. John says God is telling you something, and that is that you can have life through Jesus Christ. And the converse is also true. You cannot have life apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John says God is telling us something. You can have life. You can have a vibrancy and a passion and, and a fullness that the world cannot have apart from Christ. And you can have that through Christ. So live like you're alive, he's saying. I've written these things to you, he says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. If you've received life, walk like somebody who's alive. If you've received the light of God, walk like somebody who can see. If you've received the love of God, walk like somebody who's being transformed by the love of God. He's saying, let who God is work its way through your life. Don't try to define God according to what you wish him to be so that you can excuse your sins or your bad attitudes or your bitterness or your just refusal to grow. 
Receive who God is and then walk in that. If you're alive through Christ, walk like you're alive through Christ. In verse 14, he's going to shift gears a little bit again. John kind of is, his book is funny, honestly. I was, I was talking to a couple people earlier today. I said in terms of like putting together a perfect three-point sermon, First John is like awful because you get like this, you know, God is light, God is love, God is life, and now he's just going to like hit these like three or four random things at the end that are all tied in, but you just feel like you're losing a lot of momentum. But anyways, verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now that's confidence right there. If you ask for something that God desires, he's listening, and he's going to bring it to pass. So that means your prayers have incredible power Pray in accordance with the will of God. Okay, well, what is the will of God? Well, actually, it's great. We, we know the will of God because he tells us. All through the epistles, we've talked about this, year, this throughout the year. You know, First Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Oh, God wants you to be sanctified. God, I pray that you would sanctify me. Guess what God's going to do? Answer that prayer. He tells us to pray fervently with thanksgiving. You pray in thankfulness, God's going to bless a spirit of thankfulness in your life. So, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. It, it, it's, it's profound. You can ask God something and know that he is going to answer it. If I ask God to sanctify me, he will sanctify me. Now, I might not like the way he chooses to sanctify me, but he'll sanctify me. If I ask God to help me walk with him, he will help me walk with him. And I may not like the way he helps me, but he will help me. If I ask God to draw me closer to him, he will draw me closer to him. And I may not like the way he draws me closer to him. Because sometimes drawing closer to the Lord involves pain. But he'll do it. There are certain things you can pray and know that the Lord is going to do in your life. If you pray and ask the Lord to make you happy, eh, happiness isn't too high on God's radar. God cares about joy as an outworking of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But God making your life peppy and, and fun Oh, he likes to bless his children. Make no mistake about it. But that's not his primary goal. His primary goal is not to make sure that you just have a great, good old time here. His goal is to make sure that you're alive through Christ. And so verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give, life. He will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. This is one of those passages that people have different ideas about what it means. But here's the, I think, the, the best basic understanding of it. Okay? He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. If you're looking in your Bible, you're going to see a couple of those words are in italics. Which means that they're not there in the original Greek manuscript. And the translators who put this into English for us are inserting them to help the sentence flow more naturally in English. But they're giving us a sort of a delineation so that we don't get confused and say, and we can kind of understand, like, here's what it's saying in the original, and here's how they're trying to help it flow. But if you take out the italics, it says, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin not to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not to death. There is sin to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not to death. Here's what I think he's saying, is there are sins that will kill you. 
Now, all sin will kill you eventually because it separates you from God. But there are certain sins that will actually physically kill you. <clears throat> and there's a point in time at which someone can commit a sin to death. They can sin until it kills them. And that may not even necessarily mean that the person is not a Christian. Because the person can be a Christian and still stumble in sin. And so some people have interpreted this passage to get all kinds of weird ideas about suicide and, and all these really whacked out ideas. But here's basically what he's saying. If someone is sinning and they're not dead, keep praying. If they're dead, at that point, whatever's going on, the Lord is in control. The Lord, the, it's finished. But if they're not dead, there's no need to stop praying. Keep praying. It, it, you do not need to decide when you should quit praying because a person is too far gone. You do not need to set a, a, a marker of, oh, yeah, they, they, they crossed the line. They're too far. You know what? I'm done. Are they dead? If they're not dead, there is an opportunity for repentance. And so he says, if you see him, so I, and I, I would freely admit there are pastors who would, interpret this a little bit differently, and I'm not saying their interpretation is wrong, I'm just saying I think this is the most basic understanding of this passage, and that is that if they're not dead, keep praying. Verse 18, he says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Again, it's the active idea. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, you read that and you're kind of like, what, did he run out of paper or something? Like, it's just kind of like, you know, he's going, hey, the love of God, know God, keep yourselves from idols. <clears throat> it feels like a, he started a thought they never finished, but back it up and see it in context of the book. It's really a fantastic ending to this book because what's he telling us? Hey, you're alive in Christ. You have eternal life. You have light to see truth, to see where you're going, to see where the world is going, to understand the difference between the two. You have the love of Christ driving you shaping you, transforming you, giving you an example of how you should walk. Therefore, don't put an idol in your life that's going to pull you from those things. It's a great little just final zinger, if you will, of, hey, we have all this in Christ. Don't sell out for something stupid. Don't sell out for something cheap. Like, what are you really going to gain? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Yay, 50 years of fun, 70 years of fun. Versus what? Eternity in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Keep yourselves from idols. Don't let something or someone or some idea take precedence in your life in such a way that it pulls you out from that kind of love and that kind of life and that kind of light. That's what John's saying. So that wraps up the book of 1 John. Next week, we are going to, Lord willing, do 2nd and 3rd John. And the week after that, we will do the book of Jude. So I think, don't hold me to it. I think the next two weeks, we might actually wrap up a little quicker. But we'll see. But Lord, we thank you just again and again for your word. And 
the fact that you loved us enough to preserve truth so that we could know who you are, how you want us to live, what you're doing in our lives. And God, we pray that you would just transform us by your love. That as we receive it, that we would walk in it. That we would stay in it. And God, in the same way that you've given us life, we pray that you would keep us alive. We want to live as if we've been transformed, as if we've been saved, because we have been. We want to live like Jesus is real because he is. We want to live like he's coming back because he is. We want to live like your word is true because it is. And so we pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us power to walk in victory, to minister effectively. God, the world is in the dark, but no soul has to stay there. And so we pray that as we walk in the light, that you would give us opportunities. Give us a, a burden for the people around us to seek to bring them into the light and into the love and into the life of Christ that we have. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.